Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan, with Mark, episode 99. Mark, we're very close. One episode off that magic 100. And the competition is still open. The competition is still open. We've decided to keep it open until after the 100th, so it gives us time to put all those numbers in a hat and pull out the winner. And we've had a reasonable number of entries just this week, haven't we, Mark? So I think people are finally realising what what a fantastic prize pack they can win. And I need to announce something extra, <laughs> Mark, that we um, will have extra. in the that we'll have in the um, pack. So, um, and I can't remember whether I mentioned it last time or not, and that is Doug from Microchips Australia, which is one of our main sponsors of the podcast, our commercial sponsors. Hi, Doug um, has agreed with me twisting his arm to provide two great prizes, Mark. One is the tracker, um, the little tracker that um, I've spoken about oh, several yes. times. You, you he did gave a review me, on this, I think. Yes, yes. And the li- – oh, God, I, I forgot the name of it, live track or whatever. Jump on his website, Mark, quickly, <laughs> microchips.com.au while I chat about the other thing. But he's also agreed to supply a Lone Star Retractor oh, kit. Which is fantastic, and um, as you and I both love this particular product, it is a helping hand. So it's like like having a surgical assistant with you that doesn't answer back, isn't it, Mark? Um, so you can use the retractor to open up any cavity. Is what it's designed to do. It sounds a bit crude there, but it does its job fantastically. And um, I've sent Doug a couple of pictures of the. Lone Star in action. He wanted a bit of a video, but I haven't got a great video, but I did send him a one that we took the other day. And um, yeah, so Lone Star Retractor as well as the um, Live Trek or whatever live it's called, Mark. Um, Brendan, or, or Pet. There we go. Um, um, but the, I think the model you've got is the one that goes in the um, Treadley or the, the, um, the motorbike or car. Yeah, and I'd, I'm not quite sure which one he's going to supply. He will let us know before the 100th episode. And, um, yeah, so fantastic. So we'll have that. It'll be a huge bundle of gear um, and while, for people while to win. And while it's always you and I and having a talk need- here, it is, it, I just really value um, the support of, um, you know, there's a number of uh, our Patreons and Doug in particular and, um, and Andrew and um, Oxbow Australia. They're, we're just we're so lucky, Brendan, and it's particularly good that we can um, uh, make that prize pack so good for our listeners. Yes, and all they need to do is just send an email to vetgurus at gmail.com or jump onto our website at vetgurus.com and uh, have a poke around and then send an email to us. That's all you need to do. And as I mentioned a few episodes ago, we will send that prize pack wherever in the world the person is located who wins the wins the competition. So um, get to it. And we've had, yeah, as I mentioned, we've had a few um, a few interesting 
emails this week, haven't we, Mark, of, of entries and one including a vet student from University of Melbourne here, well, I think, um, and hello to, I think it was Zach, was it, Mark? I haven't got the email in front of me, but um, saying he loves the podcast and then his next sentence was, um, <laughs> it um, puts me to sleep every night. So thanks a lot, Zach, and um, I think that's pretty standard for our podcast. So, um, yes, but, um, well, hang on, let me just grab his entry and scrunch it up and um, throw it in the been um no actually I'll, I'll leave it in there um so yes vetgurus.com or gmail vetgurus at gmail.com and um, you will be entered so we'll have it open for another another week so we will draw the actual prize pack on episode 101 this being episode 99 which is friday september the 6th 2019 so if you listening to this in the future hopefully not listening to it in the past um then the competition may have already been run and finished and you need to catch up and maybe episode 200 don't give up on if you miss this prize there'll be other competitions brendan <laughs> that's right that's right. There's always something um, something we want to give away, Mark, apart from our um, supposed advice. Um, and we've got some good advice this week with an interesting main topic that you suggested, so we'll be jumping into that shortly. Um, apart from that, Mark, I think we're going to jump into some news very oh, quickly you do, because we're going to make in, this Brendan, a, a very... To, you promised yes. to tell me the story yes. of the um, the vet dinner. Oh, that's right. So the annual Veterinary Student Society of Victoria here in Melbourne, Australia, had their annual vet dinner, which is sort of an industry dinner um, where they have one or two practitioners, graduate vets, um, sitting on a table with a group of students and they tend to have it so the table, for instance, the table that I was sitting on, it was myself as a as the old crusty veterinarian, um, together with Helen McCracken, who um, is a zoo from um, Zoo's Victoria from Melbourne Zoo, who you know as well, Mark. Um, so it was Helen and I. So it was sort of the exotics slash unusual pets slash zoo vets um, table. I would, uh, Brendan, the I would have paid to sit at that table. <laughs> well, Actually, I didn't pay that. He hadn't paid for my ticket, so I didn't pay for mine, um, which I felt a little bit um, a little bit embarrassed about. Um, yeah, so it was sort of a meet and greet for the industry um, for vet students, and it was all levels. So I had some first year veterinary science students, and also some ones that vet students that were going in towards their their final year. So we had a, a good little chat and hi to everybody on on my table. Um, we um, yeah we had a few laughs and, and a good chat and through the night they have several speakers Mark so um, from the industry they had a general practitioner vet they had a couple of specialist vets um, a couple of pathologists and and a surgeon a small animal surgeon who just spoke about well various aspects of of life being a veterinarian including coping with mental health issues and, and coping with the pressures of practice and um, different perspectives from those different sort of niches of the industry. So it was a good night, Mark, a, a very good night. Brendan, and tell um, me, tell, yeah, for it some would have reason. been a good night. Um, but tell me, um, this you know this is a particular area of interest of mine. Um, did, you, did you find that um, the vets from different niches, from, you know, maybe industry or whatever, that they were dealing with the same... Uh, the same 
Well, they wouldn't be the same, but the, the uh, mental health issues, were they across the profession, do you think? Yeah, I think so, as far as, far as the, the common denominators, as far as stress and, and, and coping with the pressure from clients and the pressure from from keeping animals alive um, and, and, and dealing with the issues of time management and, and long hours. Um, yeah, so... so to that that extent, certainly, Mark. I think it's very, very similar. And um, there was a one of the speakers who I won't um, mention um, gave a very good presentation. Um, they were only ten minute talks, but, um, but this one was fantastic as far as um, coping with practice and, and relating to their personal journey. And it was it was excellent. Well, they were all excellent, and um, yeah, had a very good time. So yeah, that was the veterinary dinner. So yeah, it was good to catch up with a few colleagues, um, and I even um, met a couple of vets from my year at university. Mark um, had a tap on the shoulder, and I saw um, Maxine, um, who was in in one of my practical groups and one of the 46 that graduated when I went through university and also there was Peter Holtz I think you know as well yes, Mark yeah. um, and Pete um, was in my year as well so there was there was three of us from from the way back year of the graduation class of 1987 at Melbourne University so we had a little bit of a, a little bit of a chat during the during the breaks as well, so a good night was had by all, Mark. So there you go. That was my um, my big night out. Um, I don't get out very often these days. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was good, and I'm looking forward to it again next year if they happen to invite me back um, next year. So that's what I've been up to. What about yourself, Mark? Oh, um, I was going to quickly mention just uh, it, I, you know tonight's. Uh, episode is going to be a very punchy one so I don't want to wax yes. lyrical um, but um, I, I just wanted to mention the great holiday I had um, uh, I, in fact I will do a quick review of uh, Marea Island Adventures um, Marea is an island in Tahiti and the company specializes in swimming with whales I was really impressed with the way they did that in a empathetic and environmentally friendly way. There was sometimes that we uh, couldn't jump in with the whales. There were sometimes when there were too many people. Um, it was a wonderful experience, Brendan. We were on the water for six days and um, and we saw uh, we swam with uh, a variety of species, but particularly humpbacks, um, males, females, calves, um, and I cannot rate this one high enough. Um, it uh, was an excellent experience. I know um, that uh, that you can have similar experiences in other parts of the world. Tonga stands out, um, but uh, my travel companion uh, is was a guide for some of the tours in Tonga, and he uh, confirmed to me that... Um, that uh, where we were was at least as good, if not better. So yeah, that's high praise for um, the the uh, company in Tahiti and the trip that they gave us. It was awesome, Brendan. You ten will out of need 10. to ten out of ten. Yeah. Well, Mark, I, lucky I'm sitting down here in my in my studio here, Mark. Um, otherwise, I would have fallen off. Um, well, I almost fell off the chair as it is. And you will need to send me the link to that tour group, Mark, and I'll pop it in the show notes. Um, Excellent. Yes. And 
oh, gee, I was so jealous of those photos that you were posting all over social media there. You were, they were firing out left, right and centre of all these underwater shots of, of you with whales and, and various sea creatures and um, yeah, some of us slave away and others are out there um, taking photos of whales. <laughs> um, so I, I think I know which one I would be liking to be uh, or be doing, Mark. Yes, so excellent. Yeah, 10 out of 10, that has that has floored me. Um, having said that, there's no real segue, but I'm jumping into the first <laughs> news story, Mark, um, as usual. Um, I'm jumping around and that is, well, it's one that's no... I don't think it's anything new to yourself and I, and we have mentioned this particular topic a few times in our podcast, Mark, and that is the title of the article is Shocking Extent of Lop Ear Rabbit Health, shown by the Royal Veterinary College. And researchers studied 15 lop-eared and 15 erect-eared rabbits and found breed characteristics of lop-eared rabbits make them typically more prone to health issues. Um, And I don't think it's anything of those of us who deal with rabbits um, would would find um, amazingly new because we see it all the time. But it was a a study that is currently under peer review, which is affirming what has long been suspected and and certainly seen by as Markham, that these lop-eared rabbits are very prone um, to issues um, as a result of those lop-ears. And they studied 15 lop-ears and 15 erect-eared rabbits from a rescue shelter, looking at their ear canals and and taking samples and observing their behaviour and did a full dental examination and and surprise, surprise, um, 10 of the 15 lop-eared rabbits had in in-ear inflammation and 13 had ear canal stenosis. about to cough here. I, I might go. go. I'm, I'm oh, going to mute myself for one coughing, thing, mate. I was mate. just going to say that um, that it is no surprise to us that um, that we do see these problems. But I, I wonder, I've got this theory that um, brachycephalic rabbits are not as easy to recognise to people for people who who are unfamiliar with them. They And, and so they... You know, yes. everyone everyone can tell a brachycephalic dog, and um, and it's a great thing that there's an increasing awareness of the health issues that are associated with that uh, particular breed characteristic um, deformity. Some people might say, um, but uh, but it's not as apparent in our rabbits um, unless you're well familiar with the um, the shape. And a lot of those lops have relatively long coats which does sort of conceal the dramatic difference even more um, but um yes yes apart from the obvious bit of the lop versus non-lop yes and I, I my own my concern is that it will be an increasing problem in them because of the 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 want of humans to keep breeding lots of variations of lots of different they species are, they, mark but yeah they are study so was, popular they're cute to start with um and they're popular yes. um people go out of their way if they're after a rabbit they will get a lop-eared rabbit a brachycephalic faced one yes so we will link to that particular story there mark which was from the veterinary times and um yeah, that's all I've got to say about it. What's your first news story? Well, it'll surprise you that my first news story is about birds. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a um, – it's a sort of uh, – you know, it comes from our uh, favourite, the Mother Nature Network, um, and it draws a parallel between um, uh, what some birds might eat and the consequences, um, and it's not the usual one. In consult, I'm usually sort of doing the – 
galah and the sunflower seed story. But this one's about um, corvids, about crows, Brendan. Um, They are a lot like us. They're very, very smart. And they do, um, you know, uh, being smart and uh, scavengers, they do search out um, tasty, convenient food. Um, And in urbanised environments, um, they really do feast on human leftovers. And often, um, and I've literally seen it, and the street out the front of my house um, where a, um, uh, the Golden Arches um, bag has been discarded on the ground and the, the uh, crows are in there pulling out the, the last um, French fry, last um, chip. Um, and um, so the, the, across the whole population that live in this area, processed foods are starting to become a significant um, uh, a significant part of their diet, and this does result um, in uh, a test uh, of crow nestlings in Davis, California. Um, the the more urban the parent birds, the higher the blood cholesterol level of the chicks they were feeding. Hardly surprising, but crikey's that um, yes. it's uh, you know we just like humans, these high cholesterol diets are associated with. Um, Health issues, plaques, and and uh, and liver issues, and heart issues, and so um, it, it's uh, it's not, and it's one of those things that's not going to immediately show up in those young birds. Those birds will actually have higher energy levels, and um, they will appear um, to be in better body condition with a. Uh, you know, the cholesterol generally goes with other fats, um, but those birds will live less long in the wild and they'll um, breed less successfully. So the consequences of those diets will occur for generations to come, Brendan. Just to answer one question, I couldn't find it in this study, Mark. Do you think those birds end up think, eating the pickle out of those um, Big Macs or...? <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, I couldn't find it in the report there. I'm very disappointed that they should have put a sentence or two about the pickle. There's there's an internet myth that some state in the US has a law that if a particular food has um, above a certain percentage of sugar, then it has to be classified as a dessert um, and there's different taxes in that state that apply to desserts. And that's where the pickle came from because the buns that are used in, um, in making the, uh, the, they are sufficiently sweet that unless you add a little bit of something extra that doesn't have any sugar in it, um, they break the threshold. I think it's an urban myth, an uh, internet meme. I don't think it's true. But, geez, I wouldn't rule it out absolutely, Brendan. <laughs> It's a good story, Mark. It's a good story, yes. Well, speaking of pickles, um, the state of Victoria, which is where I live, um, is in a bit of a pickle, Mark, because it is supposedly the most wombat-unfriendly state. And I don't know about you, Mark, and I keep saying it, and I will keep saying it. I love wombats. They're one of my favourite animals, the wombat, and um, I was lucky enough to be the veterinarian for, I think, what was the world's longest-lived 
veterinarian. Um, I found Uncle veterinarian, the longest lived wombat, which was at Ballarat Wildlife Park. Um, and I was the vet for that particular one. But I'm trying to think what his name was. I can have, that's another one you need to look up while I'm chatting, Mark. Ballarat Wildlife Park. Um, wombat death um and he died i think it was patrick his name was as if i remember Holy and he got dooly. to about something crazy 36 or so was his age mark um so if you want to do a bit of a google search for patrick from it is patrick yes well there you go he, he died when he was 31 no. which is the equivalent of 130 in human years there you go um and he, he is the oldest bare-nosed wombat in captivity in the world in history. Yes, well, he, so, yeah. he died a so year did he or two die on your watch? Um, well, he died a couple of years ago, but uh, um, no, I heard about his death um, after probably I'd probably visited the the um, wildlife park, I don't know, a year or two before that. So, no, he didn't die on my watch, I'd, I'm proud to say, Mark. <laughs> but I have some old photographs of the kids our our two girls um with patrick i think when the girls were you know only toddlers and i can remember quite fondly um anesthetizing patrick several times when we're doing a bit of a study for some of the problems we were getting with wombats with with diets when people were feeding them dog food which was the craze at one stage you remember that story um and we were concerned about patrick being part of that part of that um cohort but um he was he was lucky he didn't end up with that um calcification um that they were getting in their in their feet yes so um that's a little bit off track isn't it but no, no, yeah but victoria where i live um which is where patrick um was um is regarded as the most unfriendly state um in australia why because it is promoted that well it's a little bit tricky, isn't it, Mark? It's, it's quite interesting in that wombats are protected in every Australian state except the state I live in, Victoria, because the Wildlife Act of 1975 has a clause in it, Mark, that allows a minister to unprotect wildlife if it's causing damage to buildings, property, crops and other animals or the environment. So in 1984, the then minister decided to unprotect wombats in 193 of the 2004 parishes that make up the state. And the concern is that um, what happens is that farmers can then go out and get a permit to authorise destruction or to, to, to be able to destroy um, wombats that they're saying are causing problems on their farm, you know, that they're putting holes in their paddocks or the burrows or they're tripping over the burrows or their their motorbikes or their, their quad bikes that, that are getting stuck in them. So they're an annoyance, Marks, and and there have been reports of, of some of the farmers that will be getting, have have managed to get these um, permits um, to kill wombats um, just because of those silly sort of reasons there, Mark. So um, the article is talking about the, um, the that maybe, maybe the time is ripe to change this clause in the wildlife act mark to unprotect wildlife um and the reason why it was brought to to attention is because of um recently there's been some concerns about um some overseas um visitors on on tourist visas where they're promoting um trips to shoot australian native wildlife which includes wombats and unfortunately um with the with at least one of the 
reports they've mentioned that uh, that wombats have been on the list of, for the, for the brochures um, to come out to Australia and you can you can shoot wombats, Mark. So yeah, a bit of a sad story. And as I say, I, I, wombats are amazing animals. Um, they they're um, very quirky, aren't they? I'm like um, you, the odd um, wombat. Um, and it, so you know, they every time that you spend with them is pretty special. You know, and it does mention, and it's it's another black mark on our state mark that it t- talks about in the second last paragraph or the last paragraph that Victoria is also a state that still allows duck shooting, um, and it is banned, isn't it, in New South Wales where you are? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So yeah, a little bit of a a little bit of a downer this one, Mark. Um, but um, I think it's something that needed to be brought to everybody's attention because I'm looking at what they listed. They listed that Victoria authorised the destruction of 3,830 wombats. That's just unbelievable. And, and that the, that number has, has doubled in 10 years, um, yes, which is just yes. heartbreaking. Um, so it's all a bit – so it's these sort of little, you know, little loopholes, I would call it, um, within the law, and the same occurs – Unfortunately, with some of the other wildlife, including including our macropod species, mark our kangaroo species, where sure sometimes they, they they might have have permits to to cull them for for legitimate reasons, but I think sometimes some for reasons that that shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed. I agree with you. In What's your second story? You've got a no, nice no, uplifting one, haven't you, for us? No. <laughs> um, it's it's one I feel a personal connection to, having um, visited Tasmania to um, spend some time looking at the wildlife there, and more recently having uh, the pleasure of seeing our migratory swift parrots uh, line up in large numbers uh, on the edge of Lake Macquarie, um, and that was a pretty special experience earlier this year. Um, those swift parrots now are returning to Tasmania, just even as we speak, Brendan, um, in preparation for the breeding season. But there is a sting in the tail because one of the most other um, special, you know, one of the... Well, you look at them and they are exceptionally cute as well, the uh, marsupials known as sugar gloves. I know they're um, pets. They're often kept as pets in uh, parts of the USA um, and uh, and even in some states, South Australia, for example. Um, we see a few of them, Mark, as, yeah, as they're, pets. They're, yeah. they're not allowed uh-huh. in New South Wales. Um, but they're actually um, uh, not native to Tasmania and they've been introduced um, and... Despite their exceptionally cute appearance and their primary diet being, um, you know, things like leaf tips and and uh, plant sap, um, they do have an occasional bent to improve the protein content of their diet. Um, and particularly in Tasmania, they're known to um, predate the swift parrot nests with excellent efficiency. Um, and it really is, you know, uh, well... I mean, it's a little bit of a dilemma because um, they're both native animals um, and they're, they're both beautiful, um, but um, we have to set things up to protect. Those swift parrots are plummeting down to um, critically endangered status very, very quickly as the uh, Tasmanian blue gum forests have been chopped 
down and their nesting sites have disappeared. Um, and to have this extra pressure um, where the sugar glutters will eat their eggs and nestlings um, and sometimes even damage some of the adult birds, um, that's a pressure they can do without. So um, um, very uh, the um, difficult bird research group um, headed by Doyan, uh, Doyan Stojanovich, um, they've designed um, nest boxes which close at night. Um, they automatically close at night um, and uh, they've deployed um, as many of these as they can um, around Tasmania, around uh, the forests of northern Tasmania, and, um, and it has at this stage uh, given pleasingly um, and the last couple of years we've had a little bit of an increase in the number of young swift parrots that have been uh, brought around, uh, that have been fledged been able to travel um, but um, geez it uh, it points to the complex nature of conservation and animal welfare and um, just what is the right thing to do with managing sugar gliders in Tasmania and they did go on to chat about um, the day, the sequence they did on the sugar gliders to determine that they probably been in Tasmania only around 150 years, not the many thousands of years they'd expect if it was truly a, a native species of the reason, region, Mark, which does make it difficult, doesn't it? You know, it, it, if that animal's been there for 150 years, um, is it a species we need to manage as in wipe out um, to help protect the other species that it's um, causing devastation or predation upon as you mentioned or at what what point do you allow them to still survive and or thrive mark um, what would you do would you get rid of all the sugar gliders in tasmania if you had a chance do you mean when i become a benign um, uh, dictator when i run the whole planet yes uh, yeah i'd wipe them out <laughs> they've yes. gone from Tassie. They, they, that's not their, their, um, you know, their natural location, their natural habitat, um, and um, and I think I would uh, the damage they do, however cute they are, the damage they do is um, is uh, well for um, a number of species. The swift parrot just being one, um, it's it's devastating, and um, I would try and make sure that didn't happen. Yes, well, I think I would agree with you, Mark, from a species perspective at least, yes. Well, I think we need to jump into our main topic, Mark, which is, as I hinted at the start of this podcast, it's one you suggested. It sounds like you're and blaming it, me. It sounds, when you do that, it sounds like, my God, Mark's come up with another one of these topics that just is so offbeat that I don't even know where to start. It's a cracker, <laughs> as usual, Mark. It's a beauty, and it is the care of the hermit crab. Well, I, I, it is, a, it is. A, you know, one of the things um, I struggle with is my um, my enthusiasm for certain topics. I, I just automatically assume that everyone has the same enthusiasm, and you know that does. I, I am made aware at times that uh, that uh, my enthusiasm for certain topics is. Well, just out of kilter with maybe the rest of humanity. And hermit crabs might be one of those, Brendan. I love these guys. And I've had, um, as well as uh, actually seeing some as patients, and we'll talk about um, the difficulties about that, 
I've had the pleasure of seeing many species, many of the 40-odd species that occur pan-tropically. I've managed to see them in the wild, so I feel very connected to them, Brendan. You certainly sound like you are. So what are, what is or what are hermit crabs, Mark? I mean, it's a pretty broad, it is a pretty broad family, isn't it, of, of, um, of crustaceans? They are, they're, they're crustaceans, they're um, uh, land crabs. So they've uh, evolved from sea-dwelling crabs um, and uh, they still need the sea to, they need the ocean to breed. They go down to the ocean to lay their eggs and the uh, larval stages are oceanic um, and that's how they, you know, become distributed so widely. Um, and it is one of the reasons, I'll have a talk about uh, captive breeding and, and where the animals that uh, come to the pet trade come from, um, but um, the, the particular ones we are talking about, the land hermit crabs, often uh, in Australia they're often referred to as crazy crabs. They're different species around the world, but there is pet trade um, in them in America and, uh, and in Australia. I don't know how big they are in Europe, um, but, um, but they are terrestrial as adults. They um, live above the high tide mark. They don't need to get into the ocean. They do need some water, um, and that uh, influences the way we set them up in their enclosures. Um, but they will wander a long way, often a couple of kilometres into the rainforests adjacent to the um, uh, the ocean, and um, and uh, and they are um, uh, perfectly comfortable in that entirely terrestrial environment. Yes, and I think they are a pretty popular pet in 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 a large number of countries. And as far as I know, there is no regulations as far as keeping these species. Is there, Mark? Um, You're exactly that, right. That as far as I know, there's no license required. They're um they're freely available. In in Australia here, we they they are harvested from the wild and um the uh, as much as we can trust anything. Um, that comes from our government. The uh, the reports would appear that um, that harvest is a sustainable one. Um, I think one of the things that I always say about um, hermit crabs is the relatively uh, common. You know, they, they almost everyone would have seen them in a pet store at some place yes. or another. Um, that sort of gives you the 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 tone the the. Uh, the things that people in the pet store might say, sometimes even the handouts that go with them have the suggestion that they're a low-maintenance pet, Brendan. And as you and I know, there's virtually no such thing as a low-maintenance pet. And of all the pets who all need lots of maintenance, um, these guys are definitely not way down there at the low end. Um, so I, that's the first myth that I want to bust, um, that uh, they're yes. not. Yes, and I think that... I think the thing that follows on from that, Mark, is that some of these species are very long-lived, aren't they, that they can potentially live for decades. Is that correct? Uh, um, it's already been recorded. There's a number of people that have kept uh, land hermit crabs in captivity for uh, more than 15 years. Um, and in the wild, the, the, uh, the current theory is that many species will live for three decades. So they are they're not, uh, um, you know, a one-and-done Type pet, they are a huge commitment, and uh, and to set them up properly will take a bit of effort. So they're not a low maintenance pet at all, Brendan. 
Well, setup, Mark, as you mentioned. <laughs> Let's go through the basics of that. Um, what 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 do you need, and what is it about the shell that everybody talks about with with hermit crabs? Do they do they outgrow their shell like what people do? Do they excrete their shell? What is the story with the shells? Well, they they have like all crustaceans, they have an exoskeleton, um, but the um, tail, if you like, the caudal, the the um, I can't even remember the anatomical name for it but um the butt end of the crab is relatively soft <laughs> um and so they do uh find discarded shells they find uh shells of dead mollusks of suitable size um and they have little claspers on their um on their abdomen and they hold on to that shell and carry it around with them um and that's where they get their name obviously a hermit that lives in a cave they carry their own little cave around with them brendan Ah, so part of keeping a hermit crab, does that mean you need to have several different sized shells in the enclosure ready for it as it grows? Uh, precisely correct. And that touches on a couple of the husbandry issues. Um, I think they are, um, they're social. They, they uh, act individually, but they're comfortable interacting with other hermit crabs. So I don't think it's a good thing to just have one, Brendan. Um, and uh, for each hermit crab, my guideline is that each hermit crab will need access to three shells, um, and those shells need to be about between... They'll change over and look for a shell that's 30 maybe 40% bigger than the shell they have at the moment. Um, so they need each crab that you have. So if you had three crabs, you'd need nine or ten shells. It's good to have them all the same size, the crabs the same size, um, because uh, the larger crabs, as they get older, they do tend, a little bit like you and I, Brendan, tend to get a bit grumpy um, and they take it out on the smaller ones. And so if you have uh, a group of them and there is a big one, they can be a bit uh, they can bully the smaller ones and um, if you're a crab with claws um, with pincers uh, bullying can take a, a fairly um, uh, uh, well limb damaging sort of approach so good to have the same sized ones good to have lots of spare shells and so where do you access those shells, Mark? Do, do, do most of the pet shops sell these um, extra shells or do you just go down to the local beach if you do have a local beach and try and pick up shells there? Although, having said that, it's illegal to take some of these sort of products from certain beaches in Australia. I don't know whether it's the same overseas. Everything you say is entirely true, Brandon. Um, most, most good pet stores um, will uh, supply they will have a supply of appropriate shells um, and that should be part of the stuff that you get when you first get them. Um, I'm not a big fan of, you know, obviously there are going to be wild animals that need to... Um, we don't have land hermit crabs down this end of the world, but we have uh, ocean-going hermit crabs who will need those shells. So I don't. It's not, it's not a good thing to make a huge habit of collecting them. And wild collected shells potentially um, could be a source of, um, of uh, uh, mites or other parasites or bacteria that um, could damage the, uh, the, the um, hermit crab. So I'm a, I am a big fan of uh, an online source, a reliable online source. There's a number of uh, hermit crab suppliers and, um, and certainly the pet stores that uh, have them 
regularly have those extra shells. I've got one thing to say about the shells that that probably isn't veterinary, that probably isn't even husbandry related, but crikey's those. Um, I like them in their natural shells, Brendan, and you can get a whole bunch of, um, well, painted shells, um, acrylic shells, clear acrylic shells. Um, oh, I don't know. They just rub me the wrong way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you go to <laughs> Shells or Us online and you find your hermit crab. Okay, so enclosure set up. So what, how do you keep these little critters? Um, what's the basics of a, a, of a vivarium? Would you call it a, vi- a vivarium, Mark, for a crab hermit crab? crab? A crab <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> you've got to be able to set up your crab Um So what you've got to do um, <laughs> is it's a bit of a ba- – it's, it's interesting because I think some of the principles we've talked about with some of the other animals we deal with, particularly reptiles, apply in spades to our hermit crabs. So we want – these are tropical animals generally, so we want a temperature gradient. Um, they will prefer an environment that's um, sort of between – 23, 24 and um, 27 degrees, that sort of range. They, it needs to be spacious. They are very active and a lot of the enclosures that are touted initially as suitable for them are too small. So I reckon you've got to get a decent-sized enclosure. Aquariums work well, but you've got to have a great lid on the aquarium because they will, they're great climbers, Brent, surprisingly good climbers. If I had a proportionately sized seashell on my back, there'd be no way I'd be getting off the ground. But these things regularly climb a long way up and they will certainly use the silicon joining the two parts of two panes of glass forming the aquarium to escape. And so the tank has to be fairly secure. But it also... Yes, Escape but it also has grief. to be uh, yes. ventilated that um, because of the temperature, because we're going to set up uh, a little bit of a humidity gradient in the enclosure, um, it is there is the potential for uh, inadequate ventilation to lead to overgrowth of moulds and, and uh, the potential overgrowth of things like mites. And so that's an important thing for us to manage as well. Okay, so... What sort of things, are you, substrate, are you, are you then recommending for that enclosure? Well, I like um, uh, the sorts of things that I like would be maybe something along the lines of um, something that's easily replaceable, something that will hold a little bit of moisture um, so that we've got that additional effect of um, of uh, of uh, a gradient, a a humidity gradient. Um, One of the things that hermit crabs do on a fairly regular basis, the small ones might do it once every two or three months, the large ones might do it once a year, is shed their skin. So they, um, and it is like a, you know, probably one of the major life events for them. They uh, will often find a cave or a burrow or a, a suitably buried location and um, and if the substrate is of inappropriate humidity um, if it's too dry in particular then they will fail in their ecdysis and um, and die so um, it's critically important to get that uh, humidity particularly in the substrate I'm a big fan of a relatively large gr- large grain size maybe um, crushed coral type sand mixed with um, one of the uh, peat mosses, one of the um, coconut 
core peat moss analogs. Um, that mixture seems to work really well. So you've got to make it deep enough too, Brennan. So we were talking about maybe a 20 or 30 litre aquarium and you want at least five centimetres of depth on the bottom. You don't just want a little tiny bit. You need a decent depth because they are going to bury into it when they need to shed their skin. Yes. So that humidity, Mark, so you mentioned it needs to be fairly high. What would it, as a ballpark, we're talking, what, 50, 60, 70%, something like that? I think we really want to get um, at least part of the enclosure up around 70 or 80% relative humidity. And at the um, drier end, you can get down just a little bit under 50. And the best way to do that, lots of... uh, People who keep hermit crabs have what they call their triple container effect. So they would have um, one one dish for food, um, one dish for um, seawater, um, and it has to be seawater, not freshwater aquarium salt, um, and one uh, dish for freshwater. And the freshwater dish can have a sponge put in it, Brendan, and um, a, a damp sponge put into the, the freshwater will create a nice little bit of a gradient specifically around that location. And additionally, the when you're setting the tank up, uh, it's good to, um, you know, mix up your uh, crushed coral sand with your peat moss and then add some water to it um, and then grab it in your hand, wring it out, um, squeeze it pretty hard and you just want it wet enough that when you squeeze it hard there's a couple of drops come out and uh, then you make up your five centimetre, six centimetre depth, set up your bowls and you're well on the way. So with that sea watermark, um, where do you access that? From the sea. <laughs> well, you can if you're um, if you're fortunate enough to live close, and um, and there there is uh, you know there's a for many people who have uh, aquaria that um, maybe have sea animals, uh, ocean going animals, or um, animals that uh, um, like a little, a little bit uh, a little bit salty, but not too much. People will get ocean water, but same deal as we we're talking about before. You can introduce. It's very easy to introduce um, uh, pests or um, uh, bacteria. So the usual thing is you can buy um, sea salt and uh, mix it up in uh, aged water. You don't want to use, obviously, fresh tap water. The chlorinated stuff is going to be dangerous and poisonous for these invertebrates. Um, And the same with the fresh water. You want to age it or use one of the dechlorinating drops that you can buy at pet stores Uh, but yes just mix it up in a bottle um, keep it uh, you can once you've mixed it up you could keep it in the fridge or whatever and replace it Um, you don't need to have like a mini ocean Uh, you know if the dish contains um, uh, 150 mils then that's an ideal amount to stick into a 20 or 30 litre aquarium so we have a bit of humidity there. We have some good substrate. I presume we're going to, we have some shells there. Um, and perhaps do we have some other sort of furniture in there, like some sort of hide areas or not? Yes, definitely. Um, and as I was saying before, they're wonderful climbers um, and they're really, really active animals. It's great to um, – they're just fun to watch the way they move around and um, the interactions they have. And so lots of people like um, a, you know, maybe a, a – um, 
dried piece of driftwood that many pet stores will sell that's been adequately aged and uh, treated antiseptically. Um, they often provide a like three-dimensional um, uh, uh, space that the crabs can move in. Um, and, and obviously where that rests on the substrate provides the crabs with a, a, uh, um, a nice spot where they can begin a relatively stable burrow and uh, be protected. Um, it's also, they are social animals, but they definitely, um, you know, as I said before, the large ones will bully the smaller ones. And um, and even amongst ones the same size, when they're vulnerable, um, they, you know, if they've just recently shed um, and they're exposed, then the other crabs will have a go at them. So um, uh, that cage furniture that sort of divides up the enclosure a little bit into um, spaces where the crabs can conceal themselves, that's a good thing and a, a, a complicated bit of driftwood is a, an excellent uh, piece of cage furniture. Yes. So what about lighting? What do we use? Do well, we use any lighting? I, yes, I do think it's important to use lighting, but um, this is not a universally held, um, uh, I suppose, uh, husbandry um, uh, requirement. There's many people who will keep them for many years with just, you know, the normal light that's uh, in a room or comes through the window. Uh, but I think that, um, as we've said many times before, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have part of the the secure roof of the enclosure, um, uh, not glass, some form of screen, and to have um, a, a full spectrum light that provides um, some some uh, ultraviolet spectrum. These animals are uh, they move around in the day. They they um, uh, they both diurnal and nocturnal, and they definitely get exposure to sunlight in the wild and. And I think that's a good thing to try and emulate. I think uh, um, there's lots of uh, um, metabolic processes that benefit from that exposure to full-spectrum light. I agree totally. I think it's like we keep saying all the time, Mark, it's providing that opportunity for the animal to select both ranges of, of temperatures, of humidities, of environment, of lighting as well, um, and making it as close to what they potentially be exposed to in nature is what we want to do, even if you did have one that was never been exposed to any natural type light apart from a fluorescent, um, a normal fluorescent globe. It may live for several years, but it doesn't mean it isn't. It is not unwell um, during that period. So what do you feed them, Mark? And there's a lot of controversy about what sort of things do you feed. And and, and, and the obvious answer there is you go to the pet shop and you buy the hermit crab well, food. Well, I think the, the uh, key thing here, and talking about feeding them is really important because um, they are scavengers in the wild. Like many crabs, they'll, they, you know, um, wander around picking up bits of detritus and deciding which bits of it they can eat or not. And um, and often um, in the wild, the vegetable material is the sort of thing that, you know, when I have seen them in the wild, it's around fallen pieces of fruit. When I've seen them feeding, it's around fallen pieces of fruit and, and uh, you know, they're, they're not big meat eaters. Um, and the key thing, I think, um, is volume. Brendan, that you can get um, commercial pellets. It's good to add a variety of um, of uh, other things uh, to them, and so a mixture of uh, um, 
uh, a mixture of a variety of fruits, occasional vegetables. Um, I tend to avoid meat um, and fastidious hygiene um, and relatively small amounts. They're not animals that have huge metabolic rates. Um, and, uh, and so I think just trying to give them a wide variety that includes fresh fruits and vegetable, vegetables, some flowers, um, couple of crushed nuts, a few um, seeds, uh, in, even uh, insects um, that have been, you know, not killed by poisons. Um, all these things will uh, help them to get a wide variety of nutrients. So, um, and, and combining that mixture of food with a, a commercial pellet um, probably provides them with an excellent diet. But I think the key thing is they aren't, uh, you're not going to have to provide them with lots of food and large volumes of food uh, will spoil in that humid, warm environment, um, and that's a much greater danger to them. So uh, hygiene, small volumes, frequent feeding, um, getting used to how much they consume, making sure the, uh, the uh, remnants are cleaned up, that uh, anything the crabs take out of the bowl is removed, they're all priorities, Brendan. So you get concerned about weight, uh, needing to put some of them on a weight loss diet, do you? <laughs> Yes, of course I do. You know, you know my concern about the whole planet uh, um, uh, um, uh, issues with excess food intake. Gee, there, so much for a, a, an easy pet to keep, Mark. Um, there's a few complex things going on here with looking after a hermit crab, isn't there? So we've spoken about the basics of enclosure set up, um, their little home that they've got there. Um, the importance of humidity and providing those, especially providing those two, at least those two types of those water dishes or, or water sources, the, the salt one and the non-salt one as well, Mark. Um, temperature um, sort of control there. Um, you've touched on lighting and diet. Gee, you've covered a lot of the a lot of the basics there. Um, what if if a client phoned up and said, "Look, the the enclosure is looking pretty grotty. That I have my." hermit crab in what do you recommend they clean the enclosure out with mate? um that's a really good question brendan and um and i the usual thing i say and um i've had this talk with uh with young people who want to keep hermit crabs um the best thing is elbow grease i think that just working hard to clean the enclosure with water and uh, maybe some paper towels um lifting the stuff out Every once in a while, obviously, a, a, a crab attack will need a, a refurbishing, uh, but I really think the effort is more important than the agent. Um, and I think, but I do think that um, there are times when you want to give something just a little bit of a, you know, one of the bowls needs a bit of a scrub, and you don't want to use uh, dangerous antiseptics or whatever. These animals are very sensitive, you know, like most invertebrates. Um, so I. Uh, generally ask the people just to give the thing a bit of a soak in some vinegar and a bit of elbow grease to get it polished nice and clean. And do you find that they may have to do a complete clean roughly X number of months, for instance, that um, no matter doing spot cleans, eventually you do need to sort of pull them out of the enclosure and, 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 and sort of start from scratch? 
Yeah, definitely. It's probably a thing that would be an annual event, I reckon, in a well-kept habitat. I think those spot cleans and various other hygiene measures are going to make sure that you can keep them there for a year or so, but uh, you want to uh, put it on your calendar that uh, about the same time each year you're looking to uh, give the, the, the enclosure a complete overhaul and, and uh, as you said, start from scratch. Excellent. Well... Gee, I tell you what, we're close to running out of time here, Mark. Um, our bandwidth has almost been used up, but I want you to just mention briefly a couple of the conditions that you would see in hermit crabs that may be presented to you for, for illnesses. So my hermit crab is sick. What um, springs to mind when, when a client rings up and says that? Well, the main one, the big one, nine times out of ten, I suppose, is that... Um, is the time around when they're shedding um, and they'll often um, drop off their shell um, and then then become, you know, quite limp. They'll often become uh, uh, maybe even, um, uh, you know, lose a leg or uh, whatever. It's really important to keep a very close eye on them but not... Um, uh, not uh, to make sure that you put them into an appropriate humidity environment. That stall in a shed is often the direct result of um, of not having access to a suitably, um, you know, the, an environment of suitable humidity, and uh, and they will sort of like give up the ghost, become all floppy and and uh, drop their shell, and and then if they're in with a few other crabs, those crabs will. Um, uh, make a make a horrible mess of the one that's not doing well but um the key thing i emphasize is that if you identify those crabs and do set them up maybe in a, a smaller enclosure within the big one a, a uh, um, uh, um you know some sort of tub one of the plastic tubs you can use the the uh, um, pet habitat type ones the clear-sided acrylic ones um, give them a decent depth of substrate with a um, that's relatively well soaked and wrung out, um, those crabs will often, once the humidity's right, they'll often go on to shed perfectly normally and return to normal, Brendan. Excellent. Well, looks like you're the person to go to <laughs> if I have a, an unwell crab, Mark. Um, yeah, the closest I've had to a crab attack is something I had to see my doctor about, Mark. So, yeah. I haven't um, had any at home um, as pets. Um, and there is a little bit of debate about whether or not maybe we should briefly touch on this as our last um, comment that you might like to make um, about whether or not you should have them as pets. Well, I do I on take that? on board fully that um, that criticism. And I know that in the US, um, the, the uh, famous animal rights group PETA um, aggressively uh, protest against the keeping of um, of pets, uh, of crabs as pets, of hermit, land hermit crabs as pets. Um, and there is, I certainly agree that there's uh, um, certain populations that are harvested unsustainably for the pet trade. I, I am given, the research I've done does suggest to me that that's not the case here in Australia. Um, but, um, but I think the, 
the you know it's the same as we talk about with many other species um, they are not easy to manage they do take a considerable effort um, and I do worry whether it's our reptiles whether it's our birds or hermit crabs um, and that's one of the reasons that you and I spend so much time trying to disseminate excellent knowledge about these animals because geez I think an awful lot of them there was some statistic about uh, more than 70% of the reptiles bought from uh, UK pet stores were dead within 12 months, um, and um, and those are just horrible statistics. Yes. yes, I think it's something we always have to... I always... We, well, my thought is, Mark, we just try and make the potential owners, if they've not purchased an unusual pet, aware of the the difficulties and the complications and the potential lifespan of, of some of these pets that they may consider a supposedly easy or simple or, or maintenance-free pet. And as you and I know, I don't think we'd we consider any any animal a maintenance-free pet, Mark. Um, and as long as they're aware of that, then we'd, we'd certainly... I, I do try and steer them away from certain species. And one, as you know, that I don't like clients to keep is uh the sugar glider that we that yeah. we mentioned earlier on in our little little discussion on our news items um because i just don't think they're a great animal to keep and um but you'd probably find there's other veterinarians who deal with the unusual pets who who are quite willing to strongly recommend sugar gliders as pets so we're all different mark but yeah um it, it's it's um yeah it's um a bit of a moral question, isn't it? Um, that um, a philosophical thing we need to always think about the lifespan of these pets and, and at least try and maximise the, the opportunities that they're looked after correctly. Um, any final thoughts, Mark? I, um, I've, I, I just was um, uh, basking in the glow of your wisdom, Brendan. I do think um, uh, that we should just make sure we uh, put the best information out there possible. I do think it is possible to keep these land hermit crabs well. There are people who who I admire immensely who've bred them in captivity. So, um, and they, uh, um, it is possible. But as you said, um, people have to enter the the program, as it were, with their eyes open. And um, and I definitely would uh, counsel people who who maybe aren't quite that committed um, to maybe buy a cactus instead. <laughs> well, you always like to put a bit of a plant um, in there at some stage, don't you, Mark? Well, with that, I think we'll call it a day for this week. And don't forget to enter our competition, vetgurus.com. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.